Well, on Tuesday of this week, many of you know, I, a scam was sent out to uh, my, my contacts. Yeah, wasn't that fun? Uh, I was so um, encouraged by your response. Many of you really wanted to know if, if you could help me out, and I, I appreciate the relationship that we have and the trust that you have in me. The content of the scam was to get you to reply to something where I was offering you to help me with a discrete item or two, and if you, were re- re- if you had replied, you were told that I needed some gift cards. Run down to the store, get some gift cards. I want to surprise the staff with some gift cards. Or another rendition was, I wanted to help some women in the community with cancer, so could you bring some gift cards in? My phone exploded Tuesday evening just as home group was starting with phone calls and texts and and inquirements, and I I appreciate that. I'm glad you checked in. Uh, A number of you also checked in with Pastor Aaron, and uh, (laughs) we swapped some notes, and and, uh, also our church administrator, Jennifer, got a bunch of contacts, so uh, uh, thank you. At any time, any, any time, if you feel in doubt as to whether this message is legit or something, feel free to contact us. So, so glad you did. It seems like the emails like these have been floating around for a very long time. A few years back, my son that you know of as Pastor Tyler was working at his church in Everett, Washington, and received a very similar email. Uh, the content was, could you please go get some gift cards and give us those numbers? We want to bless the staff with gifts. And he replied, that is such a cool request, especially since I'm on staff. I really like this request, but I'm curious, why didn't you say that to me directly since I was in your office two, two minutes ago? You know, that, that email purported to be from his senior pastor. And a, and a few years back, my son Trent got an email, supposedly from somebody who, uh, well, supposedly from his grandfather, who was in the Philippines and was stuck and needed some money. And uh, Trent replied like this, Papa, it's good to hear from you. Philippines, wow. You've made a quick recovery from your open heart surgery of last month. (laughs) I'm impressed with your ability to travel so soon. Best wishes getting out of the Philippines. (laughs) Even with all of that, they still replied. Here, I need some gift cards or some money wired or whatever it was. And, and Trent just decided to have some fun with the scammer. And so he kept it going for a little while. And finally, the scammer just, the last email he got from the scammer was, just, just send me the money. <laughs> it's like, stop stringing me along. Stop playing games with me. Oh, well. I say all of that to say this. There are people in our world today who pretend to be someone that they are not. And Jesus was quite the opposite of that. Rather than being a pretender, he was someone who substantiated his claims. We looked at this last week. Jesus said things that only God can say. Jesus did things that only God can do. He substantiated and validated who he was. And uh, in contrast to those who are in the religious leadership, Jesus actually, in Matthew 23, calls them hypocrites seven times. Maybe it was eight, but somewhere around there. A hypocrite back in the day was an actor, someone who wore a mask, someone who pretended to be an individual that he was not, and Jesus called them hypocrites for pretending 
Jesus was not a pretender. He was not a scammer. Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be and did so and uh, gave us many proofs uh, demonstrating that he was, in fact, the Son of God, Savior of the world, Israel's Messiah. Based on John chapter 2, my aim with you this morning, and I'll explain this as I go through it, but quite simply, so you know the target that I'm heading toward, my aim with you is to show you that Jesus is the new temple. And what that means is Jesus is the new presence of God on the face of the earth. You see, in John chapter 2, I think what, what part of what the Apostle John is doing is he's proving the claims that he's made in John chapter 1. So if we look back at John chapter 1, verse 14, John says it this way, and you're going to see the word, the word, that's about Jesus. So John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word Jesus became flesh. And so John tells his gospel in such a way as to support his claims in John chapter 1. Jesus Christ came as creator. He came as savior. He came as God incarnate, truly God. And John is proving his point with John chapter 2 when Jesus says and does things that only God can do. Uh, both in the last first half of John chapter 2 and what we're looking at this morning is the last half of John chapter 2. Jesus is truly God. Well, as we work our way through this passage, there are two components that I, I want to draw to your attention. And the first one is the problem with the temple. Why is it that Jesus got mad? Why did he fashion a whip out of cords? Why did he drive all those things out? When those, that was a sacrificial system. They needed animals to sacrifice. What was it in this scene that prompted Jesus to drive it out and what we call cleanse the temple? So we're going to look at the problem of the temple, but we're also going to look at the promise of uh, resurrection. The promise of resurrection, because that is the sign that Jesus gave when they asked him to give a sign. Okay, so several problems are going on here at the same time, and these led to the actions of Jesus. The first one is a disrespect for God. God is being disrespected by what is going on in his temple, in and around his temple. Well, at the temple, there was a money-making business, and it was dishonest, and it took advantage of people who were sincere and not part of the system. Here's how it worked. You had to have an animal for sacrifice when you went to the temple. And if you brought an animal with you, it was to be inspected by the priest to ensure that it was an animal without defect. Well, that's all fair. That's part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. But the problem was when they inspected your animal, they would find that it was, in fact, with a defect. So you couldn't, bring, you couldn't use that animal for a sacrifice. But since you've come a long way from home, you know what? We've got some animals here that are pre-approved. You might as well just buy one rather than going back home and coming back. And who knows, you might find out that it's not, it's not approved again. So they had this system of selling animals to weary pilgrims who had come to make a sacrifice at the temple. And they sold these animals at a big price. Not only that, if you wanted to pay money to buy an animal in the temple area, or if you wanted to pay your temple tax, you couldn't do so with regular coin. 
Not with a Roman coin, because the Roman coin had the image of Caesar on it, who somehow at some point in time claimed to be God. Okay, well, that's violation of commandment number two. We can't be messing with coins, particularly in the temple, where there's a graven image of somebody who thinks he's deity somehow. Okay, can't do that. So what they would do is you can trade coins. Bring all the Roman coins you want. We can trade them for temple coins. But they did so at a big price. So if you wanted to buy an animal, if you wanted to change your money and pay temple tax, you're getting ripped off. And everybody knew it. But if you're not part of the system, there's really nothing you can do about it. They were disrespecting God in this way, trying to make money off of the temple that God had gifted them. And I think God had every right to look at this scene and to ask of himself or ask of them, could you consider this? Is that what you think of me? I gifted you with the temple that has my presence and you've trashed the place with clutter and with scam. Is that what you think of me? I want to give you some everyday applications, and I'm probably going to step on some toes, and I, I don't mean to make this sting to make it memorable, but I want to draw you into the heart of God and what it must have felt like to be God, to look at this scene where his temple, his precious temple, and his precious people are being scammed. Is that what you think of me? You see, the temple is a gift from God, and how people treat the temple is how they treat their God. Okay, well, let's, let's extend that for a few moments. This is for the married folk in the room. Your spouse is a gift from God. You acknowledge that on the day of your wedding, most likely. How is it that you're treating your spouse as a reflection of, this is, this is meaningful to me because God gave me this person to marry? One of the reasons I try to treat my wife well is I recognize she is a gift from God to me. And I can tell you by way of experience, if you will just embrace that attitude in your marriage, that will change your marriage. This person here, God is watching, and this is a gift from God. How I treat her, how I treat him as a reflection of what I think of the person who gave me that gift. Okay, kids, how are you treating your parents? And then I, I might even be talking to adult children. How, how are you treating your parents who perhaps are aging? God gave you your parents. How are you treating them? Parents, how are you treating your kids? These God-given little people in your home who bless you and amuse you and is so fun and enjoyable to have around sometimes? How, how, are, you, how are you treating them recognizing that, you know what, there's a giver behind these gifts? How are you treating your body, understanding that God has given you your body? How are you treating your job, understanding that it is God who's given you the ability to work and earn wages to hold that job? How are you treating that job? You see, what you, how you treat the gift very often is a display of what you think of the giver. And God looks at this temple that is noisy and crowded and smelly and scammed. And he looks at it and he says, what's that what you think of me? No wonder Jesus was angry. This is my father's house, he said. And you've made it a market. 
It was never intended to be a market. It was only intended to be a place where God was worshipped and they had trashed the place. So there's a disrespect for God that's going on and it angers Jesus. This is righteous anger on display. Secondly, there's a diminished view of worship. When I was a young Christian, it took me a while to get used to the chatter that goes on in the, uh, in the church moments before worship occurs. Naively, I thought that when you came in and it was like the Lord's house and you would just sit down and, and, and be quiet and, and be, be ready. And then I came to understand, you know, these are brothers and sisters in Christ many of whom I have not seen in quite some time. I mean, a week, or maybe it's been two weeks if we happen to miss, or maybe even longer. Haven't seen my brothers and sisters in Christ. Wow, so it's just great to be with people, isn't it? It's great to gather together. It is so good to be together for word and worship. Now, have you ever noticed that we almost always have a formal call to worship at the very beginning of our service. That's not a filler. That's not for transition alone, but it does serve as transition. We are calling you out of a, a great time, hopefully, of social gathering. We are also calling you, let's say everybody came into the room and it was totally quiet. We still need to call you out of the distractions of the day and the week. We need to call you to worship. So we're giving you a heads up. Worship service is starting now. Let's look to the Lord in his word and then we pray. We are calling you to something that is different than what we ordinarily experience in the course of our days. We are calling you to worship. We don't want a diminished view of worship where we can just tack on singing about God and, and, and throw out there a little bit of word of God and we're going to call it good. Mostly we had a great time because we were together. Not that. We don't want a diminished view of worship. So the beauty and the majesty of the temple was to be a reflection of the beauty and majesty of God. Have you ever walked into an old cathedral? Now, we don't have old cathedrals much in the U.S. because our country is relatively not that old. But have you ever been in a place where you could walk into one of those grand and majestic old cathedrals and you notice that it just felt right to speak in a hushed voice. Suddenly, you, you weren't talking loud. Yeah, there's an echo in here, and it just seems like our voices carry, but you wanted to talk softly because it just seemed more respectful. The temple was designed to be a place like that. When you walked into the temple courts, immediately, oh, wow, everything has changed. I'm very near the presence of God here where respect is demanded. They lost that over some period of time. And I'm thinking it didn't take but a couple of generations, and they lost that. Here's the third thing, and this, this one's easy to miss. There's a disregard for the nations. So a disrespect for God, a diminished view of worship, a disregard for the nations. In the temple in Jerusalem, Israel, whether, you know, it's the big thing to be a Jew, but there's a disregard for the nations going on here, and it bothers Jesus. The concern that Jesus had for the nations is not original with him. 
and the concern that Jesus had for the nations and the temple being brought together. That's not original with him either. That goes way, 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 way back in the Old Testament. We've had this in writing for a very long time. Could you please find in your Bibles 1 Kings chapter 8? 1 Kings chapter 8. That's, that's in the, um, what we call the historical setting. You know, there's, there's these uh, first and second books. There's a chunk of them together. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. I want to direct your attention to 1 Kings chapter 8. So move past Joshua, move past Judges, find your way past Samuel's, 1 Kings chapter 8. Here's the scene. They just finished building the temple. Just finished building this temple in Jerusalem, Israel. They've had the tabernacle for years, ever since uh, Exodus. They've had the tabernacle. Now they finally get a permanent dwelling, as they see it. Uh, this is grand structure. And Solomon, King Solomon is there. So not Saul, not David, not this would be King Solomon, the third king of Israel. He's there, and he acknowledges that this is now open for business, if you will. We're going to use this temple. And rather than just casually walk in and use it on day one, there's this lengthy prayer of dedication for the temple. So Solomon is talking to God in this prayer, and he's actually describing some of what this temple is about. So if you look at 1 Kings chapter 8, right at the very beginning, verse 1, sitting above that, I have a paragraph title that says, The Ark is Brought to the Temple. The ark housed the presence of God inside the tabernacle, and they want to bring that into the temple. And then I see sitting above verse 22, there's another paragraph title, Solomon's Prayer of Dedication. Okay, so that tells me a lot of what is in, in uh, chapter 8. I don't want to read the whole thing because it's about 30 verses. It's kind of lengthy, which uh, gives me an idea. Maybe we should pray long prayers when we gather together. But in any case, verse 41 is where I'm going. So in the middle of this prayer... Um, after Saul explains a few things and, and, and uh, beseeches God, he says something really intriguing. Ch verse Kings, chapter 8, verse 41, as for the foreigner, in other words, the person not from Israel, not a Jew, a non-Jew outside the land of Israel. What's he got to do with the temple? Let's find out. As for the foreigner, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. In other words, the reputation of God has spread to other nations. Hallelujah! People are finding out about God. So they make their way to Israel. They make their way to Jerusalem and they land in the temple. That's exactly what God wanted to happen because they could draw near and worship him. Watch this. Verse 42. For men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks you so that all the peoples of the earth, there it is again, nations. God has always had a plan for nations to come to him so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel. And may know this house I have built bears your name. The temple in Jerusalem, Israel, was a non-Jew's best shot at accessing the, the uh, presence of God. 
The temple represented Israel's God. And the idea is that when God, God's people, Israel, were faithful to him and just lived simple lives of faithfulness to the covenant, other people would find out about it by watching them live. And notice how they, they received extraordinary blessing and guidance and had wisdom and lifestyle. That never really worked because they didn't offer imperfect obedience. They offered unfaithful disobedience. Big difference there. So the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah call out the people, return to the covenant, return to being Return to the Lord. And in, a, uh, in the prayer of Isaiah, in his, in his indictment against the people, he says this. Actually, the Lord said this to the people through Isaiah. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But if a foreigner made it to Israel and made it to Jerusalem and made it inside the temple courts... It was crowded, it was smelly, it looked like somebody had trashed the place, and he or she was not welcome. One of the things I pray for when I pray for this church is that God would send us the nations. I see it way, way back in Old Testament scripture, God has been very interested in the nations for a long time, very long period of time. Send us the nations, Lord. Send us people who don't look like us. Send us people who don't know our culture and our customs. Send us people who don't know our language. Send them here. We will be glad to receive them, won't we? Corollary to that, the flip side of that prayer is I ask God to send us to the nations. Send people to faraway places where it's hard to access them. Send them far from here so that they can tell people about who you are and your great love displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's uh, take a couple, let's look at that first picture. Here's a modern day aerial uh, photograph of the, what's left of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem of Israel. So all those trees, they were not there originally. It gives you, this gives you an idea, but not that great of an idea of how big the temple was. So that, um, gold-looking thing, that's actually Muslim. And it um, commemorates uh, the, um, well, both the birthplace of Abraham, but then also uh, an alleged site of some other things. But in any case, um, it was all flat originally. But you can, you can see in, in the midst of modern-day Jerusalem how, how big that is. If you're interested, the Temple Mount itself is that platform upon which the temple sat, one and a half million square feet. Next picture. So that's a modern day um, model to scale. It's a very small scale, but you can see that there's uh, New Testament Jerusalem would be in the background, and then that's the temple. So that's the, the flat platform 36 acres, 25 football fields. It could hold 400,000 people. In other words, the idea was that, hey, there's, there's plenty of room for everybody. Just, just come on in. We'll make more. 400,000 people 
could fit in that flat portion alone. You know, the temple is glorious, but that flat portion, what we call the temple mount, was, was to provide room for anybody to come forward in that. You didn't have to be a Jew to be in the, te- in the temple mount area. That's called the court of the Gentiles. They could go, they could reach that. They could be there and be on site, close proximity to the temple which housed the presence of God. And that was so cluttered and so smelly and so disorganized, Jesus looked at it and he just felt as if you guys have trashed the place. Get out of here. Please understand, what, what drives Jesus' heart is the access to God's presence that people were robbed of. It wasn't just being robbed of a coin here and there. It was being robbed of the purpose of the temple. God inviting his people. God inviting all people to come and to know him and to, to discover who he, who he is. Okay, go to blank slide. Uh, so the, the problem of the temple, uh, disrespect of God, diminished view of worship, disregard for the nations. And now the promise of resurrection. I'm going to be turning back on my Bible to John chapter 2. The promise of resurrection, actually, Jesus gives, uh, I think there's a couple of layers here. One is he's, he is uh, asked for a sign, and he says the sign will be destroy this temple and in three days raise it again. And, and then we understand from John's commentary is that he's talking of his body. Not, not the temple, which indeed did come crashing down in 70 A.D., so just a generation after Jesus. God raised up the Romans, and they took out the temple. That grand and glorious building was utterly destroyed. To this day, it remains uh, destroyed. But Jesus put all of his integrity on the resurrection. I'll give you one sign, and if this doesn't happen, I'm a, I'm a scammer. I'm a bogus person. One sign. Jesus gave the sign of his resurrection. He doesn't say that he will take his life or that he will destroy. He said, you will destroy this temple, meaning you will destroy me. And when you do that, you need to recognize in three days, I'll be back. In three days, I will rise again. The way I look at it is this way. A heart that is willing to kill The proper worship of God is willing to kill the Son of God. And Jesus calls him out for it. Jesus basically said this in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, I and the Father are are one. In John, chapter 14, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. A rejection of Jesus ultimately is a rejection of God the Father. So here it is, they've rejected, they, they refuse to take his authority as the Son of God. Refuse that. Show us what? Yet another sign. And I'm sure if he had shown them uh, several more signs, it would have been no good. I'll give you the ultimate sign, the sign of my resurrection. Now, there are, this is easy to make, as, or easy to miss as you go through Bible reading, um, that there, there was more than one occasion where Jesus cleansed the temple. And I want to make sure we're, we're good with some Bible study here. So I'm going to direct your attention to go back to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, I want to make sure we understand this. And it also gives you a depth of, of the problem that Jesus was facing. Mark chapter 11, 
So we, we've noticed that this temple cleansing sits in Mark chapter 2, or excuse me, in John chapter 2. So it's fairly early on in the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't even have 12 disciples selected yet. And there's already a cleansing of the temple, and it's pretty heavy, and uh, there's some angst there on the part of the religious leaders. Well, Mark chapter 11, you, if you notice above verse 1, I get the paragraph title that says, The Triumphant Entry. Okay, that's Palm Sunday. That's today. 2,000-something years ago, Jesus came into Jerusalem, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us in the highest. That happened. And then look at verse 11. The end of this, that little section on the triumphant entry, Jesus entered Jerusalem, Sunday of Holy Week. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then I got a new paragraph title that says, Jesus clears the temple, and that takes me to verse 12. The next day, the next day. So that's after Palm Sunday, after the triumphant entry, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, uh, Jesus was hungry, and there's a little episode there. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the, the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Oh my goodness, isn't that what we just read in John chapter 2? John chapter 2 have, occurs very early into the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's say it occurs in year 1. Well, we know that Jesus carried on ministry for three, just a little over three years. So here we are just about two years later after this raucous scene has occurred at the temple. You would think people would say to themselves, or at least the religious leader, hey, nobody mess with the temple. We don't want that guy coming around here again. Two years later, the same thing occurs. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He walks into the temple. He sees it's a mess, and he takes action. Wow, these people are hard. Now, it gets even more extreme. The Son of God is on the scene, and he quotes the Word of God, and still they will not listen. Look at this. Verse 17, as he taught them, he said, is it not, is, and it sounds like this is not shouting, he's teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, that's Isaiah, but you have made it a den of robbers, that's Jeremiah. Jesus is just simply quoting Old Testament Scripture and teaching them and um, bringing some application to them. Now, fascinating, the way Mark lays it out, it sounds like Jesus took command of the temple and he stayed there. Look at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, so he left Jerusalem that night, and he came back the next day. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts... The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, he asked. And then it continues on from there. So two years later, the same event happens, clear out everything, and two years later, they ask the same question. Where do you get off doing this? Who told you that you could be the boss of the temple? We have a high priest. He's the boss of the temple. What authority do you have? Didn't they already settle this with him? 
hard, hard hearts. The Son of God is teaching them the Word of God right there in the temple of God. They will not receive it. There is a clear connection between your heart for God and your heart for God's Word. I know there are some who feel as if they love God and they do best when they go hiking in the woods. I love creation. I love to hike. love to be in the woods. I'm not going to argue about that. However, if you love God, it will be demonstrated in a love for God's Word. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commands. A good way to measure your Christian maturity is to consider your grasp of the Word of God. Well, let's see if I can tie this together and bring it to a close. What did Jesus show us here in this temple episode? Divine knowledge. Jesus knows people. We saw that. He understood people. He sees past the charade of religious veneer and adherence at the temple, but also Jesus knows the future. Very confidently, he spoke, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up again. Divine holiness. Jesus knows sin, and he also knows the cost that will be required to deal with our sin. He knows that in advance. Divine anger. Jesus sees the disrespect that's being offered to God. Jesus sees the diminished view of worship. It should have never been this way. And Jesus sees the disregard for the nations. They should have been welcomed. We know all of that was both real and legitimate because Jesus Christ really was crucified and he really did raise from the dead on the third day. Given that, given all of that, is there someone else you would rather trust than Jesus Christ? If you are a Christian, you live under his authority now. No one else's. You are under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. But would you really want it any other way? There are many, many people, unfortunately, and I don't, I'm not saying there's a big, large amount in this room, but there are some people who treat Christianity like it's a social club, that it can do something for you. Well, I, I hope it does do, do something for you, but Christianity is not a social club. It is a gathering, a collection. It is a body. It is a bride. It is a house. It is a family that belongs to God because of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Through him, you can show God the respect that he so rightly deserves. Through Jesus, you can have a high and real and true view of worship through your love for Jesus Christ. You can express concern for the nations. Let's pray with me now before we take communion. Our great and glorious God, not enough has been said about how great you are because not enough can ever be said. Love your word. Love your word. We just can't read it enough. Love your son, our savior. We just can't follow him perfectly or good enough 
to represent you. Love the nations, those people out there that we don't know yet. You're going to share some, share glory with some of them. Love them. But we just can't do it right. We are in our own stumbling way. We come before you this morning and ask that you would help us to align ourselves more deeply, more clearly with Jesus Christ, his authority and his word over us. Thank you, God, that you give us moments to participate in what we call the Lord's Supper. We get to do that together. We are thrilled at that. We approach the table this morning with all due respect, with love for you, each other, and a knowledge that we belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.